Our second reading for today is also from the book of Judges, chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. For King Jabin had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. At that time, Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 warriors went up behind him, and Deborah went up with him. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had come up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the troops who were with him. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is indeed going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot while Barak pursued the chariots and the, and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. All the army of Sisera fell by the sword. No one was left. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. This is going to sound weird, but I have been fascinated by the book of Judges since I was a child. Of course, I was kind of a weird child, so maybe it's not that surprising. I don't think most children have read the book of Judges, which is probably a good thing because the ending of Judges is like the NC-17 section of the Bible. Comparatively, today's story about Deborah is quite tame, minus the bit about war. Deborah was considered a very dangerous sort of story when I was growing up, though, because it was just the kind of story that might give you the wrong idea that women could lead men any old time and not just under super special circumstances. I remember asking my pastor about Deborah once, wondering if she could be proof that God does call women to lead. He told me that God only used her because no men would step up to the plate. I, I didn't buy it, but um, it's no wonder that I was fascinated by the book of Judges because Judges has more major female characters than any other book in the Hebrew Bible. 
In chapter 1, we have Aksaw, who asks and receives land from her father, an unusual event in the life of a biblical woman, to say the least. Next on the scene is Deborah, prophet, judge, leader in battle. But all the women in Judges do not fare as well as Aksaw and Deborah. In fact, the most brutalized women in all of Scripture appear in this same book. There is this fascinating but tragic trajectory regarding the fate of women in Judges. And I want to follow their stories together. Now to remind you of the wider chronology, the period of Judges is sandwiched between the Israelite conquests in Canaan and the establishment of the monarchy. In other words, the Israelites have settled in a place, but they do not have a king. They were supposed to be following Yahweh, hence no need for a king. But that didn't always work out so well. The basic pattern of Judges goes like this. God's people rebel. They end up living under the oppression of another nation. They finally cry out to God for deliverance, and God raises up a judge to deliver them. This happens over and over again. And the judges often functioned as military leaders, but they were also settling disputes and delivering messages from God. But by the end of the book of Judges, things are so bad for the Israelite people. You are left feeling desperate for a king already who might be able to keep things in better order. Interestingly, Archaeologist Joanne Hackett has discovered that pre-monarchy, women were likely able to rise in power and take on various roles that would later become unavailable to them in the period of monarchy. That so many women play key roles in the book of Judges prior to the establishment of the monarchy is therefore not surprising. The fact that the Bible makes no bones about the fact that Deborah was judge, prophet, leader, and also woman is a good indication that there was perhaps nothing unusual about her role. Now, as I explained in the church newsletter this week, I will be reading the book of Judges through a feminist critical lens. Now, I've heard through the grapevine that might have caused a bit of a stir. I think there was some concern about what feminist critical meant. And maybe people even wondered, why must Kendall always be such a feminist? Maybe you even wondered, is all of this even relevant to my life, my pain, my struggles, my fears, and my hopes? The answer to that question, by the way, is yes. But first, I've got to do some explanation. So let's chat for a minute about biblical interpretation and my own hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just a fancy word for how a person reads the Bible. In case you didn't know, you also have a hermeneutic. Literally everyone who reads the Bible has a hermeneutic. It's impossible not to have one, even if you don't know what one is. Because everyone who picks up this book brings his or her own experiences and preconceptions with them. So in other words, we all wear a certain lens when we read. And the lenses we wear are shaped by who we are, our place in life, and our place in society. It's inevitable. So take a silly example. You are reading a picture Bible book to a child. 
and the child points to a picture of Jesus preaching and says, he's so old. And you're thinking, uh, no, he's not even 33 yet. He's actually quite young. So which one of you is right? Jesus is old when you're four. Because everyone who has graduated kindergarten is old when you are four. If you are retirement age, though, Jesus is super young. So what if you ask a teenager? Or what if you ask a 33-year-old? Do you see what I mean? Everyone interprets a story through their own lens. The worst sort of problem we get interpreting the Bible is when people won't admit there is a lens and instead act as if they possess the real and ultimate meaning of Scripture, and anyone who doesn't see it the way they see it is simply wrong. This is a very dangerous way to read the Bible. It gets people making all sorts of claims on behalf of the Bible, and worse, claims on behalf of God based on very narrow ways of reading. This is doubly compounded by the fact that not only do readers have a particular lens, so do writers. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before that history is written by the winners. We are generally hearing the stories through the eyes of a particular segment of the population, but we miss out on hearing the story as it unfolded from the perspective of others. Recent biblical scholarship has helped us to be more aware of these dynamics. Namely, the Bible has largely been written by men who were victorious. And the Bible has been predominantly interpreted to us by men. And not just men, but most often white men who hold positions of power and authority in the church or academy. Liberation theologians and feminist theologians and black theologians and womanist theologians and Latin theologians and on and on have stood up to say, hold up. There's more than one possible interpretation here. There's more than one way to tell the story and there's more than one way to hear it. So an example of this would be James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I talked about this a couple months ago, how Cone helps us reimagine the cross through the lens of lynching, and how that perspective helps us to understand the cross in a whole new way. I believe the most responsible way to interpret scripture is to name and own your own lens. Otherwise, you're just wearing a particular lens, but pretending you have 20-20. My consistent lens is the feminist one. And I'm honest enough to tell you that. Okay, but what is a feminist critical lens? A feminist lens is an intentional taking off of the dominant default patriarchal lens. You take those glasses off. The usual way of looking at things just won't do anymore. 
So with a feminist lens, you pay extra attention, not just to women, but to anyone in the story who is ostracized, marginalized, or silenced. Feminism does not mean my interpretation is somehow like female limited to the exclusion of men. Every lens has its limits, that's for sure. But feminism is a particular tool for broadening our perspective beyond just experiencing the story through the eyes and ears of the victors. Compared to the dominant, default, patriarchal lens, a feminist lens is more deeply human and humane way of looking at the text. It's somewhat about gender, but it's also about so much more than gender. It's this intensely Jesus-y way of reading the Bible, because Jesus always, always saw the outcast, regardless of gender or social status or ethnicity or able-bodiedness or any other factor. So just to be clear, when I say we'll be reading with a feminist critical lens, that is not something new or different from what I always try to do when I read the Bible. But secondly, it doesn't mean I have some liberal agenda driving my interpretation. It's basically a Jesus agenda. And I believe that my calling as a preacher of the gospel is to help us see the world through Jesus' eyes. If we can learn to read the Bible with Jesus' eyes, then hopefully we will also read the world with Jesus' eyes. So, Kendall, why not just call it the Jesus lens rather than the feminist one? Because I think it is important to own the fact that I am a woman. And so I read the text in a particular way. Just like the four-year-old brings a different perspective from the grandma. I can only read the text as I am. And, as it, is in, and it is important that I own my lens when I interpret, so that you will be encouraged to own yours. When I preach, I am always delivering a message to you about God and how I believe God works in the world. But I am also always delivering an approach I'm saying here are some ways you can engage the biblical story. I recommend curiosity, good question asking, imagination, empathy, attention to the ostracized, etc. Because my job as a teacher is not to tell you what to think about a Bible passage. It's to equip you to read the Bible for yourselves to empower you to ask your own questions and develop your own acknowledged hermeneutic. I want to take you from an unexamined hermeneutic to an intentional one. And so I model it. Why does this matter? Because if we are not intentional about our hermeneutic, we unconsciously default to the norm, and the norm is patriarchal. The default interpretation led to the Crusades and the Inquisition. The default lens led to theologians in Germany defending white supremacy and to our ancestors in this country defending African slavery and manifest destiny. 
The default lens is what we see in certain pockets of evangelicalism today that co-opts the gospel for political gain. Hermeneutics matter. So I don't just read the text as a feminist because I'm bored or because I hate men. I am a feminist because it is vital to the survival of Christianity that we name the ways the dominant hermeneutics have damaged people. And it is vital to the survival of human life that we create and sustain new healing ways of interpreting these texts. Feminism is not the only healing lens through which to read the Bible. It is a lens. And it is the lens I am most uniquely situated to use faithfully. I try to expose us to black theology, for example, but I can only learn from black theologians. I can't be a black theologian. And it would be dishonest to pretend that I could because that's not my perspective. It's someone else's, and it's my job to honor that perspective and learn from it. Finally, if my hermeneutic is all about seeing things with Jesus' eyes, why the heck read the book of Judges? Couldn't we just read a nice little healing story from the Gospels and be done with it? Or at least find something more relevant. It is my belief that these stories are deeply relevant. They do not just deal with what it means to be a woman in the ancient world. They deal with what it means to be human in tumultuous times. To think that these stories about women are just about womanhood is to fail to see these women as fully human. They are not a subcategory of human species and thus inaccessible to the men or to the women who don't identify as feminists. These women deal with life and with family and with grief and with fear and with challenges just like the rest of us. And in fact, because they are marginalized, they are relatable. They are inspirational. Because they have known bondage, they can speak to our liberation and they can lead us to be liberators. We can find our own stories reflected in theirs. And it is vital that we develop the capacity to see ourselves in the lives of these women because it is vital that we see ourselves in the lives of our marginalized neighbors. It is vital that we develop the capacity to see the world through the eyes of these women because it is indispensable to Christianity that we learn to see the world through the eyes of the least of these. This is gospel-oriented work, and we train ourselves to do it here amongst the safety and support of friends so that we will be freer and more equipped to do it out there when the going gets tough. Do you see what I mean? Okay, so I've nearly ran out of time to talk to you about Deborah. (laughs) Some of you might appreciate that little lecture on biblical interpretation, and some of you are maybe trying to stay awake. Thank you for hanging in there. I think these things are really important. I really do. Some people like having all that background information, and some people would rather I just tell a good story and preach a good sermon and not over-explain it. I get that. Today is Explanation Sunday. (laughs) 
Sorry I didn't warn you. Next time I'll give you a heads up so if it's not your cup of tea, you can volunteer in the nursery that Sunday. Okay, some very brief remarks about Deborah, and then I will leave you with a word of hope and encouragement. Deborah, 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 we have finally arrived at your story. You are such a rich character, and there is so little time left to say so. Our English Bible translations call you Deborah, wife of Lapidoth, but that could also be translated woman of Lapidoth, noting where you are from, not who you are married to. It's hard to be sure. Lapidoth means torch and has the connotation of fiery, so perhaps woman of Lapidoth means you are a woman of fire. I like that translation. Your name, Deborah, means bee, and it is easy to imagine you as the queen bee of the Israelite people. They come to you for judgment. They come to you for a word from the Lord. You lead and direct and guide, and no one seems to object based on your gender. Cool. In Judges chapter 5, which we didn't get to read today, you lead the people in song after victory in battle. I'm a bit of a pacifist personally, so I struggle with your war involvement, but that is a sermon for another time. You offer this long poem about Israel's deliverance in which you call yourself a mother of Israel. We don't know if you had biological children or not. The text doesn't say, but you mothered a nation into 40 years of peace. Oh, what I would give for someone to mother our nation. Male or female, it doesn't matter. Just someone to lead us into 40 years of peace. Someone to nurture us and take care of us and show us the way. My own mom had the stomach bug last week, the exact same time I had the stomach bug, even though we were a state apart. Her mom died of cancer 27 years ago, but my mom says that to this day, when she's sick, she still wants her mommy to bless her heart. She misses her every day, and then there are the days she misses her so fiercely it hurts. I have an independent streak, but if I'm sick, I always call my mom. I can tell you what she'll say. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I wish I could make it better. I wish I was there. Have you taken medicine? Here's what you should do. I know what she'll say, but I still want to hear her say it. Not all of us have good mothers who were there for us when we were sick, of course. But I think all of us have experienced that longing to be taken care of when we are sick in body or in spirit, when we are sick as a family or as a nation. Please, somebody, help me. This is the repeated story of the book of Judges. The people cry out, please help us. We know we mostly got ourselves into this mess, but we don't know how to get out. Help. And God, like the mother God is, brings aid. There is no gospel faithful way to preach comfort to you if it is not also comfort.
for your neighbor. There is no liberation for you if there is no liberation for your neighbor. It is my job as a preacher to remind you week after week that God loves you so much. And God loves the world so much. Those two loves cannot exist independently of each other. God loves you with all the ferocity of a parent and the immigrant, the outsider, the outcast is God's baby too. That's the message. That's the gospel. It also happens to be feminist. I want to take you with me on this journey through the book of Judges because I think it will be worth our time. And I think you're up for the task. Oh God, who is like a mother and father to us, deliver us from our mess. Amen.